I'm Jill Rowe and I want to introduce you to the first episode of a new podcast with me chatting to Steve Chalk about him standing in the bike sheds as a kid and being told about the facts of life and me sharing the truth about the tragic death of a fish. Through these and a whole number of other stories, we discover what our contribution to the world can be, leaning into the power and wonder of defining moments and exploring how we might live intentionally and on purpose, experiencing life as a gift. We had a lot of fun recording this. I hope you enjoy it. So, Steve, I thought it would be great if we asked each other a few questions just to get the ball rolling. So my first question to you is this. Mm. What, this is a long time ago, I know, Mm. but (laughs) what is your earliest memory? My earliest memory? Well, I've got got a problem, uh, actually, (laughs) about that. Uh, Only in that I've got a lousy memory. A really lousy memory. I've got got some memories, but my wife, Cornelia, will tell you. She'll say... Do you remember on our 20th anniversary, wedding anniversary? <laughs> and well, which I can't. And then she'd say, You remember that restaurant we went to? Which I can't. And then she'd say, Remember the dress I wore? You know, oh. <laughs> and then she'd say, Remember that shirt you were wearing? I, I, I actually live in the future, not the past. So I have a rotten memory, which um, is terrible for me because there are lots of things I wish I remembered that I don't remember. But I am always thinking about the future. I've, that's one of the things I've learned about myself. But my, my earliest memory, which isn't that early really, I must have been about seven and it was a wet playtime at school. And my best friend at school was called John Dean. But John Dean was a lot more out there than me. I, I always yeah. looked up to him because he seemed to be streetwise. I mean, I didn't realise he was only seven or eight. <laughs> but he seemed to just know what was going on whereas I never knew what was going on. And, it, and at, on a wet playtime, there was this old shed, that big old shed. It uh, used to be a bakery but and where the vans went, but now our school used it just to you know, stand in. So I remember watching this rain falling down and standing next to John Dean, and he said, uh, have you heard about the facts of life? <laughs> well, I had no idea what the facts of life were. So I said, yeah, because they could have been anything. And he said... I don't think you do know. Let me tell you. And he told me about sex. And I was thinking my mum and my dad. And I remember saying to him, no, John, that is impossible. <laughs> that is not. That, I don't believe that. And, and that. and I would have said that's my first. I can still remember the rain. It was pouring down and this thing. There you are. I suppose the biggest defining thing yeah. of my life um, my earliest memory, so it's not a memory as such, but it's just who I am, is I'm partly English and partly Indian. And, and even just yesterday, I was somewhere, I can't remember where it was, and someone said, oh, you've been away. And I've ne- never been away. Well, occasionally I do go away. But I, I just said, no, I've not been away. I just, you know, we've had a sunny week or two, and if it's sunny, I go brown. But that's because my dad was Indian, my mum mm. was English, and so I just tan, you know, given five minutes on Peckham High Street type of thing. But um, that did define my life because my, my father was very, very dark-skinned, South Indian, almost black. And he came to this country at the beginning of the 1950s 
from India after the petition of India, as it was called, and couldn't find work because of his colour. We grew up in South London, lived in South London, where I still live, in fact, but it was almost entirely white. And when he married my mum, half her family never spoke to her again. Lots Mm. of people just wouldn't have anything to do with her because she was married to this black man. And so I grew up very aware of that and seeing the tensions of it and seeing my dad's reactions to the discrimination he bore. And I think that probably has been quite a defining thing for my life. I should think so. (laughs) I really wasn't expecting you to tell that first story. Can I just say that? But anyway, that was funny. I've never Um, told you about John Dean before. No, no. Yeah. No. Even a cool, it's a cool name, isn't it? John it is Dean. John like Dean. Dean. <laughs> Film yeah. star. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. That The story about you, your family history, your family story. So what happened, given that that was the context that you were growing up in, the experience around you, what then went on to happen? Because things changed for you, didn't they, when you became a teenager? And... Yeah, yeah. So I think... In another sense, the defining moment of my life was as a teenager and I was telling somebody this story yesterday actually again because um, it involves Crystal Palace Football Club. I am a Palace Palace supporter, great Premier League team, (laughs) (laughs) holding up most of the rest of the division. Uh, We've escaped relegation yet again. But I lived at one end. I grew up living at one end of the Palace Football Ground Uh, which is called the Whitehorse Lane End. I lived on Whitehorse Lane. That's where I lived with my mum, dad, brother, two sisters. And um, down the other end of the palace ground, it's called the Holmesdale Road End, where the home fans sit. And there's a little Baptist church, uh, which I I didn't know it was a Baptist church. It was just a little little old building, prefabricated building. And um, what used to happen was, well, there was a girl that I fancied who went to a posh school, and I went to a poor school and that was all wrapped up with my dad's colour and the lack of opportunities he had and etc etc anyway I went to this dump of a school it was a dump of a school long since shut down and um, there was a girl who went to one of the posh schools grammar school in the area who I fancied um, she was out of your reach she was out of my reach completely because the governing body of our school I guess, this is me now knowing what I know about education, must have done a deal with the governing body of their school because we weren't allowed to walk home past their school, even though it was the most direct route home. Our, the boys from our school weren't allowed to go down the road with the girls' grammar school in because obviously I realised that the, the, the governors must have thought this would be very bad for our admissions. Yeah, I they know. probably had that John Dean talk as well. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's probably where John <laughs> Dean learned it, I suppose. But, um, uh, but anyway, as a result of that, there was a girl that I really liked called Mary Hooper, and I'd heard that she went to this youth club at the end of the Palace Grounds in Homestale Road every Friday night. And so I started going there because it was just like close to where I lived. And I went for ages, months probably, months and months and months. And then one day uh, she told me, well, she got a friend to tell me that she didn't fancy me. I was 14 at the time, yeah. And and at the age of 14, this is heartbreaking stuff, isn't it? It really was heartbreaking because I fantasised about her all the time, I suppose. And then I hear this bad news that she wants nothing to do with me. And I remember wandering 
up the side of Palace Football mm. Ground, home, um, a little street up the side, and thinking to myself, I'm never going back to the youth club, ever, never, ever, because it's so embarrassing, humiliating. And then by the time I was reaching about the halfway line, or where I know the halfway line is, because it was on the outside mm. of... Well, it's, it was hard to call it a stadium. <laughs> but, shed. Shed, yeah. Um, I thought to myself, do you know, that youth club's good. Now, I, I say it was run by a church, but I had no idea, really, that it was run by a church, I don't think. But they used to tell us, the adults that ran it, that our lives mattered and counted and we could achieve things and our lives had purpose and meaning and potential and all of that kind of thing. And I remember comparing it as I wandered up the side of the football ground, thinking I'm never going there again, thinking, but even if Mary, Mary Hooper mm. doesn't fancy me, they've got a much better story down there than they've got at my school, because at my school they tell us we never amount to anything. I didn't do any exams because our school didn't do GCSEs as um, they're called now, used to be called O-levels, and never sat one, because they always said we couldn't. So... It suddenly dawned on me that down at this youth club, they told a better story than at my school. And I remember deciding I was going to keep going to the youth club, even if Mary Hooper didn't fancy me. Um, she was 15, by the oh, way, did I say? I yeah, that was the problem. You were too young, yeah, Steve. I didn't realise that. Too at the young. Time. Too young um, and naive. So I, I kept on going. But on the last leg of the football ground, the second half of the mm. pitches, it were, um, I thought, well, if I'm going to keep going, this story that my life's got meaning and potential um, is really important. So when I grow up, I'm going to set up a school that's worth going to, that teaches you that your life matters, because that's what they teach me down at this youth club, my life matters. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a school and I'm going to do a hospital because I knew loads of people who needed proper health care and didn't get any. Um, so it's a bit random. And I'm going to set up a house for teenagers to come and live who no one's ever told that they matter. So I came up with these three ideas and decided that, because um, I knew it was a church, you know, somehow, mm. that, well, whatever that message was down there, the message of the church was going to become my message and I was going to buy into it totally fully and I was going to lead a church one day just like that. So the next week I went back, told these guys... That's what I was going to do. I was going to set up a hostel, a school and a hospital and I was going to be a Christian because they had a church and I was going to become a church leader. <laughs> and that was that. All at 14. All at 14, all on one night, all in about five minutes or as long as it takes to walk past Palace Football Ground. Amazing, um, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it, well, it's a gift, isn't yeah, it? Because yeah, it is. It, because it came from totally outside myself. And I yeah. honestly say honestly say that every single day of my life since, actually every single hour of my life since, I've been driven by that thing. Mm. And when I say it's a gift, I mean it's a gift because if you invent something, if you say, I am going to do this, mm. and the source is somehow your commitment mm. or it's your, you engine, know, your decision, it? yeah, your decision becomes your engine. 
But of course, in achieving anything in life, you face such incredible setback, misunderstanding, rejection, lack of funding, bankruptcy, you know, all sorts of things. Those, no one believes you. They all think you're naive. You'll never do any of these things. And everybody delights in telling you that. And sometimes it's just winter, it's cold, it's freezing, you're ill, you know, all that kind of thing. So if it was coming from your own decision, well, you know what, we all know what it's like, you just give up. But I've always felt this came from outside of me Mm. and this is what my life's about. So even when I've not actually been doing much about it you know because everybody messes up i've always known that that's where i should be going because of this event it's really yeah just to come across as the kind of less uh kind of um got it all together person in Mm. this duo Mm. my earliest memory is of killing a goldfish (laughs) is killing a goldfish (laughs) killing a goldfish oh no yeah purposely um, Was it an act of murder? <laughs> I think unintent. What do you call it when it's unintentional? Uh, manslaughter. Manslaughter. Well, fish, slaughter. fish slaughter. Yeah. So we, when I was growing up, we lived. My father was a head teacher, uh. and we we lived in a schoolhouse in this little uh, primary school. And one of the classrooms had a pet goldfish, mm. and I was only about two and a half, three, but could roam the grounds because it was like that way back then in the olden days, and. Um, I just went into the classroom and spotted this goldfish and thought it would be nice to take it round to my mum back in the house. So I just put my hand into the uh. goldfish bowl thing in the classroom, got hold of it and walked back to the house with the... With Wriggling. A, well, it it wriggled to begin with, <laughs> and then and then it stopped wriggling. It stopped wriggling. So, yeah, so you I You thought it was just relaxing. I thought it was just pleased to be with me. Um Oh, yeah, no. so that's my earliest memory, which isn't quite as impressive. Did you bury it? Probably, I would think so. I was only a small person. Um, it's not quite as impressive as John Dean and you and the facts of life. But <laughs> but it's funny, the defining moments thing, mm. for me, weirdly, uh, it, my defining moment, I think, I, I had lots when I was a teenager like you. There were mm. things... Things that happened, youth workers, people who uh, asked me good questions about what I was doing with my life. Um, But it wasn't, I think the biggest one was when my mum died, actually. Mm. Because I think what that did, it brought into... How old were you then? I I was 25, 24, Mm. 25, um, which is too young. Mm. And I was just starting out as a teacher and a youth and community mm. worse when I first met you, actually, Steve. God, it was ages ago. Um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> Do you is remember it? you were on TV way yeah, back then a lot? Last millennium, Jill. Yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I do remember it in Derby. It was. You, you came into my school. Mm. Um, um, so my mum got cancer. Wait, she'd only just died then, had she? Yeah, it's really near when you, you mm. guys came. Yeah. Mm. And, um, but what it was defining because you suddenly get a massive appreciation of, firstly, the value of life, like mm. every minute, every moment is a gift. Mm. And secondly, this idea of the legacy mm. that your life 
has the opportunity to be and to bring to other mm. people. So who you are and how you are has a big, like that became really significant yeah. for me. Yeah. My character, um, the way I was choosing to be around other people. Because mm. I think when you lose someone who's very significant in that aspect of your yeah. journey as a human. Yeah. So you think you've got grandkids and all yeah. that, haven't you, Steve? That, you know, your children have had the privilege of all those years with mm. you. When when you don't when you know yeah. you're not going to have that, suddenly how you are seems to matter even more because you yeah. can then share that with a whole host yeah. of others. So that it's funny, isn't it, that those things can How does that impact massively day to day in the work you do? Massively. Well, my role in and of itself, I, so I work with you. Mm. <laughs> and I've got this title of ethos and formation director. And I guess at its heart, that role is about, it's about the movement that you and I are a part of in Oasis. Um, but it's about the, the way we all are in the organisation, but the way, that the, the way we're shaping up as the people we're becoming and to give a real focus to that. So every day, I guess, what we're doing is asking people to be thinking about their legacy, to be thinking about what contribution they're bringing to the world, to one another, to their families, to the communities that they're a part of. Um, so those questions we have of who are you and who are you becoming mm. are at the heart of my everyday. Right. And I think... So they're questions for you. They're, they're my questions mm. and they're questions related to mm. the, the, both the pain but also the joy you find mm. in the memory of those that you've lost. Um, but, yeah, I bring those into... And there's not a day. There, there just isn't a day. So a fish... And a, the death of a fish and then losing my mum. <laughs> the fish doesn't really play much responsibility in my work, it would be true to say. So anyway, Steve, mm. let's get personal. Uh, what is your greatest trait? I think probably my greatest trait, I think, is, is, as well as anyone can self-analyse, is my... Um, doggedness I don't know if that's the right word for it but I'm quite good at keeping on going and not giving up I think do you know I'd never noticed <laughs> <laughs> I think I get that from two places mm. um, I get it from my dad in the sense that I watched a mm. world that mm. didn't appreciate a black man and and I um, I saw him keep on going through all of that and doing it with grace. And my mum, who um, is pretty doggy to marry him in the first place, you know, mm. and my dad, uh, my mum, I should say, I would say this genuinely, you know, everybody says nice things about their parents and that. Um, but my mum, who died um, three years ago now, was without doubt, the hardest working person I have ever, ever encountered anywhere. Mm. Just extraordinary. She had no education and my mum and dad had no money. They never even had a bank account. My mum did get a bank account towards the mm. end of her life. Um, and my dad had died because her cousin died and 
left her some money and she had nowhere to put it. So we had to <laughs> get her to open a bank account. Uh, she never had a passport. Um, or she got a passport um, uh, after my dad died because Cornelia and I took her uh, to France, but she'd only come for the day. <laughs> so the only time she ever left the UK, Britain yeah. was for a day in France. Wow. And she got back. That's it. She didn't want to stay overnight. So it's kind of like... And, and my dad used to work on the railways in the end and he got paid in a wage yeah. packet and they used to put the money in little tins along yeah. the mantelpiece. This was for the food and that was to pay the milkman and, the, you know, this kind of thing. So um, they never had a car. Um, so my mother used to walk everywhere. There were four of us kids, so she used to go get all the shopping by hand all the time and carry these huge bags and things. She was unbelievable. Her work output um, was just extraordinary, mm. always. Um, Didn't you and your brothers and sisters have matching clothes? We uh, sometimes used to. We could, well, we always had second-hand clothes, that's yeah. the point. We never, ever had new clothes. And, and sometimes, um, I think... She, my mum managed to get... She got them from second-hand shops and things yeah. like that. And then um, then friends gave her things. So sometimes we had matching clothes, yeah. It was amazing. Didn't you have a Sunday best outfit? Oh, I had a Sunday best outfit, which was... <laughs> I had... Um, it was a tartan suit. Um, Rocking short it, trousers. Steve. Yeah. Now, who would buy their kid <laughs> a tartan suit? <laughs> it was in South London. I with wish short there trousers. was a picture And of I had that. long grey socks. And then I used to have um, little um, bits of elastic that went around okay. the top inside them. You turn the socks okay. over and then... And little then, toggles down the side. Yeah, little, the yeah with tartan down the side. Uh, yeah, oh, that's would, a look, I'd, Steve. If I'd have lived in Edinburgh, <laughs> I would have... You should bring that back yeah. sometime. <laughs> so I used to have this little tartan suit with tartan, yeah. So have you got from your... And I you... had to wear that on Sunday. I'm glad you don't wear that still on a Sunday. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a thought. But anyway, um, so do you think you got that trait of doggedness directly from... Yeah, I think physically somehow from mm. my, my, my mum and, and in terms of his morale to keep going from... From my, from, from the dad. kind of moral direction of it, probably from my dad. Yeah. But the just sheer physical doggedness. Yeah. Um, from my my mother, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, truly, I can't. My mum and dad never went to a restaurant. I don't. Never. Mm. They never did any of the things that we all take for granted. Yeah. She just worked and worked and worked and worked. So mm. I think it it came from there. So I'm amazingly grateful to her. And your Achilles heel? My Achilles heel is probably the other side of that same thing because yeah. normally, you know, what yeah. makes us is also what destroys us. <laughs> kind of thing like. And I think that because I can keep going, yeah. um, I can get frustrated with other people and I think, God, oh, you're lazy. Why don't you just get on with it? Let's do something here. We'll never get anything done. You probably know that. You know, I get very frustrated with people who just don't seem to see what we've got to do. And we've got to do it all this week, not next week and all the rest of it. And slowly I've, slowly I've realised, I hope I'm getting better at it, but I realise it's my problem, not other people's problem. Funnily enough, and when uh, Cornelia and I first got, Married, I've probably told you this yeah. before, but when Cornelia and I first got married, is honestly true. Uh, she said, I just couldn't believe how much time she spent asleep. <laughs> She's like always asleep. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I said, I used to say oh, to her. Oh, we love Courtney. Yeah, though. I used to say to her, Cornelia, there's something wrong with you. You know, you need to go see a doctor or something because you're always asleep. You must have some kind of sleeping sickness or, you know, it's kind of like that. Anyway, over, I, I don't know how long, you know, I, I felt like this, but over time, I, um, I, we slowly went to stay with other people, you know, and, and, um, and I began to work, you know, uh, left college and began to work. I realised everybody had sleeping sickness except yeah. for me. You were the weirdo. <laughs> they all spent <laughs> so much time asleep. time asleep or just sat in chairs doing nothing. And, and I realised it was me. Yeah. Um, it was it was me that it, I think it's just a gene thing I inherited from my mum. She's just she was always just hugely up and out there. Mm. Um, so that's my Achilles heel. I think. Well, I've got lots of them actually, a mm. um, whole legion of them. But one of them is that because I can see we ought to be doing this and this and this and this and this, and we got to do it now. I can get frustrated with others who either don't see it or can't do it. Yeah, I'm sorry. So quickly. I'm sorry if we all frustrate you <laughs> so badly. Yeah. But the point is, because I rush on in and do everything, is what I'm not saying that I can see it all and do it clearly and other people can't keep our I, I kind of rush on it, rush on in and do the wrong thing. Yeah. Perhaps chill that's, it out a bit. Yeah, that's why you need help. people like me around, Steve. Like <laughs> yes, <you>. indeed. Yes. <laughs> so what's your defining trait, Jill? Um, I think... I think Steady, like I said, I think um, being able to not rush in, <laughs> I think would be my, one of my, what I mean by steady is that, that um, I'm an introvert by nature, so I am always clocking everything that's going on. I'm, mm. I'm kind of... Um, I look in a kind of circular way, not just mm. uh, like so. You always look to the future. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting and looking mm. around. I think all the mm. time, um, and um, reflecting in order that the next mm. action makes sense. Mm. And I think that's what creates the steadiness mm. that people would have. I remember when I was at sixth form, one of my uh, lecturers. She, my mum, also worked at the sixth form. This. This lecturer just went up to my mum and said, Jill's very stoical, hmm. which I didn't really know what that meant at hmm. the time. And, uh, but it's just interesting that that's something that keeps, that always comes back. Um, but so, like you, that can be the flip side of that, you know, the, everything has a shadow, hmm. doesn't it? So sometimes I think that can create a, much less than it used to, but I think sometimes that can create a lack of sometimes a risk-taking that you need to have for some things. So I've got but probably being around you, to mm. be honest, has has given me that greater mm. uh, recognition of actually you, you do need to just go. Sometimes mm. you just need to go for things. And that's been a really good thing. But, yeah, my gift to you, Steve... Mm. <laughs> And in, in a lot of the work that I do is that ability to look around, interpret what's happening and then bring that into the decisions yeah. that we need reflect. to make. Because an activist who doesn't reflect, of course. It's dangerous for us all, Steve. Yeah, well, you just um, 
you know, so I always I say to people often, you know, the problem with being an activist that doesn't reflect is you say, you know, I've been doing this job for 20 years and I've got 20 years of experience. And actual, actual fact, you've only got one year of experience. You've just had it, yeah, 20 times. Yeah, 19 just, years of doing the same go, mistake over yeah, and over you go again. The, yeah, because yeah. you don't stop and learn. Yeah. Mm. So that's so that's a team thing as well, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah. And I even if so. you do learn, because I'm future orientated, you can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, uh, let's. I know. Um, at the moment, so I I I know you well enough, Steve, to know that you're. Well, you got an an MBE. MBE from the for, Queen. From the Queen. A member of the British Empire. I was made. <laughs> Which, strange thing, as Britain doesn't have an empire. So. <laughs> but it's nice, wasn't it? It was a nice day. And it's it great was. that you it got that. Nice and it's great what you got it for, which mm. was for services to um, kind of ending exclusion. In, inclusion. Yeah, inclusion. Well, the funny thing was... It was mistyped. <laughs> yeah, when I went to see the Queen and she said to me, uh, she said, I won't try to do her accent. She <laughs> probably best not. Uh, no, to. She said, uh, she said, oh, she, oh well, I'm trying now. <laughs> she said, I see you got this for services to exclusion. <laughs> and I said, I hope not. <laughs> kind of like, and, and in actual fact, they've written services to ex, yeah. uh, ex, exclusion, meaning you've serving exclusion by creating inclusion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's what you're known for. Yeah. Um, anyone Googles your name, that's mm. what they'll discover. Mm. Um, but with that and with your activism and your passionate um, desire to see justice and mm. what have you, that must leave you with a lot of frustration as well because things aren't... Well, they don't no. happen at the pace you, you want. They don't happen and, at the pace. So what keeps you up at night? Well, um, exclusion. Um, I... I so Oasis Badge, you know, our logo. What's Oasis? Uh, Oasis, the charity that we both work for that you were mentioning earlier. <laughs> yeah. It's just coming up. <laughs> All right. No, you talked about it earlier, Jill. <laughs> so the charity that you were talking about just a little while ago that we both work for, um, Oasis, well, we can talk about what it is, but yeah. it's badge, it's, um, yeah, it's logo, is is a circle, the O of Oasis, which is very messy if you mm. ever see the logo. It's a messy circle. And we always say that it's the circle of inclusion. And it's a messy circle. It's many-stranded um, because um, inclusion always is messy, um, but inclusion creates strength. Um, so for me, that circle, if you like, sums up what I'm about. It's, it's bringing people into into inclusion, into acceptance, into belonging, into community, mm. working hard at that all the time. And so that's a never-ending task because there are so many exclusions. There's mm. exclusions around gender and sexuality, about race, around race and ethnicity, around uh, what some people would call disabilities, etc., um, around lack of opportunity in education, huge mm. exclusions. Um, kids just don't get the wrong right start in life. They end up on the wrong side of the law throughout life. Mm. They, they're penalised and punished instead of being loved and given the opportunity for transformation. They're just some of the things 
that I think about. But the incredible thing about inclusion, for everything you see, mm. um, there are there are hundreds of exclusions that you make, tribal um, judgments that you make that you're not even aware of. Mm. Yeah, mm. I'm sure we'll talk about it in a future podcast. Mm. But um, how do you? So I know. I know you well enough to know that you get angry about some of these things. Mm. Like for you, it's an affront mm. that these injustices, mm. these exclusions mm. exist. But at the same time, I've seen the, 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 the love that you have that just mm. compels you to, like, just keep going with it. How, how do you hold that anger which mm. is a righteous, mm. like a righteous mm. frustration. Anger, isn't it? Frustration. Yeah. How do you hold that anger alongside that massive compassionate mm. love you have towards? Well, I think I think people. That it's the frustration that drives you mm. uh, forward uh, a lot of the time. And but I don't feel angry with people. No, I I, I really don't. I think it's just systems. Yeah. Do you know? Um, you know, one. Uh, um, one of the most important bits of the Bible for me, because and I read the Bible a lot kind of thing, <laughs> not half as much as some people it ought to be said, but one of its authors, one of the authors of some of its books is this guy called Paul, mm. um, who's a follower of Jesus. We call him the Apostle Paul, a real world shaper. But he's one of the thick points he makes at one time because he's driven by a passion to include people, mm. I think, as well. But one of the points he makes once is he says, um, when he's writing from inside being imprisoned, at mm. a house imprisonment, but he's imprisoned, and you can f sense how frustrating this is for him. But he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but he, we wrestle against principalities and powers i.e. policies, you know, um, that have been put in place, legalities that have been put in place. We wrestle against empires and corporates. Uh, and corporates, of course, aren't the people that make them up. The corporate takes makes a will of its own mm. and the people that work within it are trapped, for instance. So I think in creating justice and inclusion and equality, and equity for people, we're wrestling against giant powers and principles that are a work in society that forever put the poor down, forever put the disadvantaged down, forever leave out communities. Um, so I suppose that's what, um, that drives me. And I get emotional about it. I do get emotional about it sometimes because I see the havoc this uh, mm. causes, creates in people's lives. Mm. So... The emotion is what drives you in the end. Yeah. Well, it stirs you, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I suppose that's back to my dad, you know, yeah. so I'm very grateful for, you know, 15 years after my dad was denied the opportunity to work, he got a manual job in the end, as I say, for, for the railways as a ticket collector. But about 15 years later, my uncle, who had exactly the same qualifications in life as him, came. Mm. And he became the head of a maths department at a mm. school in uh, Croydon, which is amazing, you know, 15, 15 years, years advance. So it's no good, you know, waiting for liberty to be given. Liberties are never given. They're taken. They're fought for. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So I guess the, those are the kind of things, aren't they, that you and I are going to try and 
talk mm. about more and explore more. Mm. And they are the things that the organization that you founded, mm. that Oasis that we Oasis. Yeah, that I think I called it. About. I think I called it the movement we were part of. Um, uh, Oasis, the movement, the organization that you set up that comes from that thing that happened to you when you were fourteen, mm. um, is driven by that. Yeah, that those things, isn't it? That story that, that that's its DNA. Yeah, um, mm. and so it's a. It's a it's a privilege, isn't it, to just be part of something that's mm. yeah, that's focused around those yeah those so, agendas. Yeah. And so for me, what happened was all I did, if you like, was I went back to that youth club and I discovered those adults that ran the youth mm. club I went to, they were only in their they were twenty one and twenty two, all of them. But when you're fourteen, you know that they're 21, ninety, aren't they? Yeah, they look like you know, they're just they were adults. About to kick up the daisies, yeah. <laughs> And um, But I got talking to them. One was called Ken, uh, one was called Steve, one was called Paul. Um, and uh, the, the thing was, uh, they said, well, you know, they were all theology students. That's the point, you know. Um, so they said, well, you've got to do theology. If, you, if you're going to get anywhere in terms of setting up a hostel or a hospital, <laughs> you, you really can't th even think of it without doing theology. Well, of course, I went to a school where I never had a, um, a Didn't have an ology, did you? No, no. I, did, I had no idea what any of this stuff was or a university was, really, except I had seen University Challenge, which used to be a programme on the telly in the UK, um, and so I'd seen people that went to university, but I never imagined I could go to a university. Um, but they told me I should do theology because this would help me do everything else. And uh, they all went to a college that was just up the road uh, from Homestead Road from the Palace Football Ground. It was called Spurgeon's College. And so years later... I went to Spurgeon's College because it was the only college I'd ever heard of and it was just up the road from where I lived. I had no idea that you could go away so to university. I did, no one told me that there were other colleges that also did this thing called You didn't theology. know that there was a life outside of no, I didn't. I honestly didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. Um, because there's nothing to link my... I mean, yeah. my parents didn't have a car, you know, so... <laughs> I remember actually one one day when my dad was older, he'd retired, and we had a cousin who lived in Wimbledon. We lived in South Norwood. Now, for people who live on the other side of the world, Wimbledon and South Norwood are how five miles apart? Five miles, I six think, miles yeah. apart. I Not far. Know. Yeah, and I remember my dad. A long walk. Uh, my, I remember my mum suggested we went to see my cousin, and my dad said, "Not the kind of journey you want to make in winter." <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, he said that. He'd heard what Wimbledon yeah. was like. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to go to Wimbledon in the winter. <laughs> so, uh, uh, now there's a little tram train that goes from Croydon to Wimbledon and it's the next stop. That's <laughs> ridiculous. So I grew up in this kind of environment. And so these guys said, well, you've got to do theology. Well, I no one had ever had a careers lesson with me and and that we go to Spurgeon's College. So I went to Spurgeon's College and I did theology because it was just... It was literally round the corner from where I used to live. It was literally a five-minute walk. So there I, I did theology. and But that was a great thing, I think. Um, it, it, I slowly learned that... Um, I slowly learned that this 
faith that I imbibed, because these guys were Christians, was in actual fact this huge movement towards the liberation of the whole planet. I don't think I was taught that by any of our lecturers, but I kind of read that in the Bible. And I thought, I am part of a movement for liberation for mm. everyone. And my sending up a hostel and a school and a hospital, that's part of the liberation. Mm. And from there, long story, which I won't tell, slowly Oasis was born. Cornelia, my wife, who I've mentioned, said we should call this thing Oasis. We tried setting up a hostel to start with. And slowly Oasis has kind of crept into... Um, life since then mm. and from my in my experience in my life it's only when you have um, had the opportunity to encounter working alongside people who are the excluded who are the disadvantaged mm. that you, you go actually yeah you find your mm. you you find your um your reason to get going. Yeah. And your reason. And so I think for me, even though, like, like I've stepped into working alongside, well, a long time now, it's 22 years this year, Steve, okay. um, that, that there were things that I took part in and set up and mm. became involved in that I know propelled me. Mm. And what I think about people becoming the best version of themselves and exploring who they are so that they can become their best and all of that, that... You cannot underestimate just how significant having that in your life is, mm -hmm. can it, for everything that you yeah, do. Yeah. So, and that's what we're going to be talking about, yeah. isn't it, uh, uh, through this podcast as, as the weeks or the episodes or, <laughs> yeah. or whatever All the years ahead, yeah. Uh, yeah. Steve. All, all rolls by, which is... Um, Brilliant. Yeah, which is a great thing. And um, for anybody, if there is anybody who's <laughs> listening, um, I suppose... We're doing this because we're all on this journey together, really, aren't we? Mm. Every single one of us living intentionally, which is what you've been talking about. Um, Recognising that this life, life is a gift and invest in it. Absolutely. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jill. There we go.